All right, so we're continuing in our series looking at the beginnings of the church. Uh, any, you know, the church, we need to know our history, don't we? Right, and it starts in the Bible. It's a long history, almost 2,000 years, right? And even before then, if you count, you know, the times that God was working. But, but we need to know our history. So we're looking at the book of Acts, and we're trying to glean anything from there that we can to show us who we are as a people and who we ought to be, what God has done. Last week, we looked at Acts 8, and we looked at the martyrdom of a disciple named Stephen, and that, uh, that stoning of Stephen, it sparked a time of persecution that scattered the young church. But last week, we also saw in that scripture that disciples took the gospel with them wherever they went. And people in other nations were saved because of it. Right? And we talked about how God's plan cannot be thwarted. This week, we're in Acts 9 where our author, Luke, he zooms in on the life of a man named Saul. And now Saul was the Jewish religious leader who approved of Stephen's death by stoning. And if we're looking at the beginnings of the church, we have to talk about Saul and his journey, right, from enemy to apostle, right, to the apostle Paul, who we know about today. See, Jesus chose his 12 original disciples during his ministry on earth. They became apostles, 11 of them minus Judas, right? And some of them had rough backgrounds, right? But none as rough as Saul's background. According to what Luke writes in Acts, there was no greater enemy for the church than Saul. In Acts 3, we see Saul ravaging the church that says that he would enter house after house, breaking up these church gatherings, right? Dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. Well, people started to run away, right? We talked about that last week. But Saul hated the church so much that he wanted to chase down the people who ran away. He was an elite religious leader. He didn't want to teach he didn't want to lead. No, instead, he's described like this in Acts 9, right? Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Asking for letters from, from the chief priest to get, go to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any men or women there that he could take them and put them in prison in Jerusalem, right? He sets out on a 135-mile journey northeast of Jerusalem, to find believers in Jesus, right? That's determination. That's about the distance from here to like Concord, New Hampshire, right? But we're not talking about a car ride. It's a 47-hour walk to Concord. And what kind of hatred must this man have felt in his gut to go and ask a high priest for what are essentially extradition orders, so he can find men and women who love Jesus, gather and break bread, pray and love their neighbors. Right? And there, there weren't that many of them at the time. So he's just going to search for them in this city. Clearly, the high priest said yes to this terror campaign because the next verse, we see that Saul is already nearing Damascus. But before he gets there, something unexpected happens. Right As he traveled and he was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Who are you, Lord? He said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. So Saul is barreling toward Damascus, ready to arrest Jesus' people when, as John Stott writes, he gets stopped and arrested by Jesus himself. Right? He crashes into Christ, and the scripture says he falls to the ground. He doesn't know who's speaking, but his response, Who are you, Lord? tells us that he has a vague idea, at least, that something divine is happening. He's blinded by the light of God's glory. And Jesus clears up his confusion, and he says, I'm the one you're persecuting. I mean, let's just stop there and, and marvel at the way that Jesus identifies with his church. Right? It's not just spiritual sound bites in Scripture, uh, the one that's saying that Jesus' people are one in places like John 17 or Romans 6 or Ephesians 1, where the church is called his body. Jesus identifies with his church such that evil done to the church is evil done to him. He tells Saul, you're persecuting me. Now he says, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. He's going to finish his journey to Damascus, but his original mission is it's been overruled by Jesus, right? He's going to be told what he must do. Verse 7 says, then the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the sound, right? But they couldn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were wide open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to, into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and didn't eat or drink. Saul has had an encounter with the risen Jesus, but his journey's not over yet. God, God is sinking up. Um, God in Saul is sinking up with his work in another man. Right, a disciple who loves, who lives in Damascus, named Ananias. So God is working through two men at the same time. Right, He does that. He's working through two men at the same time. Neither one of them knows it at the moment. Jesus tells this man, Ananias, get up, go to the street called Straight, which is actually a road that still exists today. He tells him to go to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he's praying there. Verse 12, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. There are often instances like this in the Bible where God works in two people at the same time for one purpose. Ananias gives some gentle pushback to Jesus' request. He's heard about Saul and his mission to arrest Jesus' followers. But Jesus responds to Ananias in verse 15, and he says, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, right, non-Jewish people, to take my name to the Gentiles, to kings and Israelites. And then he says this, verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Jesus has a mission for Saul. Right? He was obviously already willing to travel for work, but now Jesus is going to send him with his name to all kinds of people. 
And if you read on in the book of Acts, you'll see this actually happens. Gentiles, kings, Israelites, every box gets checked. Saul's mission has been radically changed. And Jesus says, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Right? Saul's whose, whose mission was bent on making Christians suffer because of his hatred for Jesus, it's about to be revealed to him that he'll endure as a suffering Christian himself because of his love for Jesus. Right, he's out there persecuting those who love Jesus. Now he's about to experience what it means to be persecuted for his love for Jesus. Check out 2 Corinthians 11.24 later if you want to see a list of what this man went through carrying the name of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.24, if you want to write that down for later. So Jesus tells Ananias, go. And he trusts Jesus, and he goes. Verse 17, Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. If you want to know about Ananias' trust in Jesus, look at the way he addresses Saul. Brother Saul. Saul, who was breathing murderous threats toward the church, is now Brother Saul. He's now Brother Saul. He says, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Verse 20 says that he immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues in Damascus. He is the Son of God. That was his message. This is a dramatic turn of events in this book, enemy to apostle, literally on his way to destroy the lives of Christians. And an encounter with Jesus changes the trajectory of his life. But not just his. This man traveled much of the Roman Empire at the time, sharing the good news, starting and strengthening churches, touching the lives of an innumerable amount of people. He's the author of 13 out of 27 books of the New Testament. If Acts was the only book you had and you were reading it for the first time, you wouldn't have guessed that this was the turn that was going to happen. This is shocking, right? It's the unpredictable work of God. Not even Saul is outside the saving power of Jesus. Some of you have mentioned how you saw God's unstoppable plan in last week's passage on the persecuted church, how the message continued to go forward. Uh, but this, this is another level, right? The persecutor himself, God's sovereign plan includes plot twists like that. He has the power to save the enemy. He loves Saul too. Right? Saul receives forgiveness. Saul gets to be called brother. Who is outside of God's bounds? And so I want to talk about the gospel in this passage and what might be in here for us today. Uh, there are two things that are wild in this passage, and we've talked about them, but I want to kind of boil them down, and that's Jesus saves the worst of us. 
right? And the worst of us can be truly transformed by Jesus. Jesus saves the worst of us, and the worst of us can be truly transformed by Jesus. Okay, and, and like not just brought to neutral, being a stand-up citizen, but transformed, unleashed for the kingdom of God, blessing generations beyond what we could ever count. Now, both of those things, Jesus saving the worst among us and Jesus transforming the worst among us, they can be hard for us to swallow, hard for us to understand. It was hard for Ananias when he asked him to go see this man who was breathing threats of murder to the church, right? I remember working in a restaurant maybe like 12 years ago, and, and no one I worked with believed in Jesus or, or really knew much about Christianity other than maybe some bad childhood experiences uh, with some overly legalistic denominations. Uh, and I was pretty open about my faith back then, especially. I was a newer believer, and I had one coworker who just always wanted to talk to me about it, usually in an antagonistic and sarcastic way. It, it was lighthearted, mostly, kind of friendly, but definitely antagonistic and sarcastic. But he was the one who had the questions. And the subject of God's forgiveness in Christ came up, and he just couldn't stomach that God could forgive anyone. That Jesus' payment for sin on the cross had no limits when it came to forgiveness. It was scandalous to him. Right? That's actually the right word. It was a scandal to him. He hated the thought that, that God's grace was open to, to war criminals, Right, to some of history's most brutal figures, that they could simply have trusted in Jesus and received forgiveness after the horror they brought on the world. And, and that's what ended our conversation. He didn't want to talk anymore about it. He's the one who brought it up. He didn't want to talk anymore about it. But, you know, sometimes I think our minds, they'll go to the most far away and extreme examples because we're avoiding the everyday, really close-to-home stuff in ourselves. Right? We always want to go, could God have saved Hitler? Right? But, but are we thinking about what's going on in ourselves? And I'm not here to say that what you and I have done in our lives, the sin in our lives, is equal to war crimes and global atrocities. Right? There, there's nobody in here who kind of has that laundry list. And although I have yet to meet a person who doesn't downplay their own sin, right? I don't think I've met a person who hasn't downplayed their own sin. I've heard unthoughtful responses to these questions before that simply make all sins equal in their gravity. And I've failed to find a scripture that shows that. I've seen scripture where particular sins are especially heinous to God, especially those that harm the vulnerable, widows, orphans, children, right, etc. But what the Bible does say in Romans 3.23 is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are, and that they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the main point of that is we are all sinning against the same God. Right? We might not all be war criminals, but we are all sinning against the same God. And so here's the deal. While our sins may not be the same, our need is the same. And there is only one, only one 
who meets that need. From the most saintly person you can think of, right? Let them crop up in your mind to the most hellish people who have walked the earth. We are helpless the same. The Bible uses the same words for us all. Our need is the same, and the price that Jesus paid is the same. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's one big mixed bag, right? I think about Ananias, who called Saul brother. Like that's what Christians would call each other. They'd use sibling family language. Called Saul brother. Who would you dread calling brother or sister? Right? Would you stop and think about that person? Who would you dread calling brother or sister? What if you committed to praying for that person? Right? You mean if he saves that person, then that means I need to call that person brother or sister? I can't even imagine it. Matthew 5, the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Right? Do you believe God can actually change a person? Right? I hope so because I hope that you have been changed by him enough to believe that. Right? And, and of course, I, I, this could be taken even to an unhealthy level with abusive relationships and boundaries. Right? People need to show the change. Right? And it doesn't always mean that you get back in each other's lives kind of thing. Right? Paul actually does get questioned. But do you believe that God can change a person? What if we prayed for our enemies, even the big, famous, and powerful ones? Like we were praying this morning, 930, 8, 9.30, uh, about Russia, right? And it feels almost strange to pray, God, would you save Vladimir Putin, right? It feels weird in, in my stomach to even pray that. Right? But Acts 9 shows us that a single encounter with Jesus can change the world. Right? So would you think of one person out there? You don't need to know them. You don't need to like them. But think of that one person. I'm going to pray now. And I want to together obey Jesus' command and pray broadly that God would save our enemies. And would you pray that with me uh, as I pray? We don't need to name names. He knows who they are.